0: Hello, everyone, and thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fake TV Critic, a podcast where I discuss the week's biggest TV news headlines, recap and analyze some of my favorite shows and let you know what you should be watching. Let's start off with a little bit of sad news. We lost another TV legend this week. Frank Bonner, who was herb on WKRP in Cincinnati, passed away this week at the age of 79. I grew up watching WKRP in reruns on Nick at Night. Not as often as like I Love Lucy, Bewitch, those kind of things, because WKRP came a little later, both, you know, when I was you know, when Nick at Night was kind of being phased out, but also later, like it started later at night. So I didn't really see as many, but another TV legend, you know, we lost George seagull earlier this year. Um, and it's really sad that we're losing these legends. What else? Lifetime announced that they are rebooting the 1980s television series, Highway to Heaven, which you may remember when it was in reruns on PAX TV, and it is going to star barry watson and jill scott now i don't know what happened to barry watson but the barry watson that i know like seventh heaven was christian-ish right like he was on seventh heaven and that was christian-ish but the barry watson that i am familiar with more than seventh heaven because i never really watched that is the barry watson who was in the horror movie boogeyman which sucked and but Mostly I know him from the awful and truly offensive in hindsight film Sorority Boys. Now, I don't understand how the person who made Sorority Boys, which was about a bunch of men who are in a sorority who date rape women and record it and then get thrown out of their sorority. So they decide to live as women in the, quote, ugliest sorority on campus so they can pass for the ugliest women. Like it was just it was not. Cute. How does that person now become the face of like all this conservative shit? I don't get it. Like he does movies for UP TV, which is short for uplifting TV. And now this highway to heaven shit. Like, so the original series was about an angel that came to heaven to like guide people. And it was very of that time of like, touched by an angel and shit like that. I I, I just feel like we've moved past it. And the fact that it's gonna be on lifetime is ironic as shit considering their entire output right now is like, about slutty teenagers and murdered cheerleaders. It's bizarre. Anyway, Disney Plus has ordered a prequel series to Beauty and the Beast, um, and it's going to follow Gaston and LeFou, whose name is Louis, and Louis's stepsister. And now I, I don't really, first of all, I hated the live action remake of Beauty and the Beast. I thought it was ugly and boring. Um, I don't really understand the purpose of this series. I, who cares about Gaston and LeFou, especially this iteration of them. Luke Evans is coming back as Gaston. Josh Gad is coming back as LeFou. But like, there was a moment in the Beauty and the Beast movie that the director, Bill Condon, hyped up forever and ever and like people boycotted because of where he said there was a quote, exclusively gay moment in the movie. And then when it came out, it was like for a half a second, Josh Gad was dancing with another man and like smiled at him. So if we are going to get an origin story of LeFou, where he is like his sexuality is very clearly marked and represented, cool, I want this show to exist. But otherwise like, what is the point? of like an, an Abbot and Costello, but in the Beauty and the Beast world without any of the characters we actually give a flying fuck about in Beauty and the Beast, I don't get it. But that's coming soon. And then finally, in renewal and cancellation news, a few renewals this week included The Hardy Boys getting renewed for season two on Hulu. I watched season one of that, didn't particularly like it, but also didn't hate it. So cool. Girls 5 Eva on Peacock, which I have not watched yet, but everyone is telling me to. Legendary on HBO Max, which is getting a third season. And sadly, all the judges are returning. And then Cruel Summer, which I'm going to be recapping the finale of in this episode, got renewed for season two on Freeform. And apparently it's the it's Freeform's best performing series of all time, like better than Pretty Little Liars, which blows my mind, but also yay. And then canceled is Manifest on NBC, which got three seasons and is now being shopped elsewhere. Apparently it's very popular in net, on Netflix, so they may pick it up. Uh, but NBC did decide not to renew it. And Grand Army got canceled after one season on Netflix, which I feel like I keep announcing these cancellations of Netflix series. And I always say, like, I didn't even know that was a series because I didn't even know they were series like they keep canceling these shows after one year and I've never heard of them. So clearly they're making some decent decisions because no one online is talking about them and they're not popping up in my recommendations. So I don't. Another one and done show on Netflix. I didn't even look up what this was. Grand Army. What? Does anybody watch this? What the fuck is this show? Regardless, it's gone. (laughs) So if you. Whatever. Okay, coming up on the podcast today, I am going to be recapping the season finales of Cruel Summer on Freeform, which was wild. And the we'll find out who the winner was on the first season of Drag Race Down Under. So stay tuned. I recommended Cruel Summer a few episodes ago. I mean, maybe like 10, even at this point. I don't fucking know, I can't keep track of time. But Cruel Summer was excellent television if you love teen dramas if you love mysteries if you love multi-generate not multi-generational um multiple timeline stories being told this is top tier like summer binge tv the whole season is on hulu right now or on demand from freeform if you have cable still and i fucking loved it i loved it and the final episode was was like the final nail on the head or I, I i'm trying to gather my thoughts still okay so cruel summer like i said in my recommendation and a few episodes back tells the story of two girls across three years and each episode is In three timelines covers about the same day in different years. So, like, the first episode is Jeanette's birthday in 1993, 1994, and 1995. And then we also meet Kate Wallace. We find out at the end of the episode, Kate Wallace was kidnapped by Martin Harris, who is the new vice principal at her and Jeanette's high school. And then Jeanette by 1994 has kind of assumed Kate's life, is dating Kate's boyfriend, is best friends with Kate's best friends, um, has changed her appearance. Like she started straightening her hair, got rid of her glasses and her braces and starts dressing differently. And then by 1995, Kate has escaped and is fingering Jeanette as an accomplice to her kidnapping because she says that Jeanette Saw her at her captor's house and didn't say anything. So we kind of get the story unfolding forwards and backwards, and it's it was a fascinating story. It was a it was so compellingly written. I mentioned it was written by uh, Burt V. Royal, who didn't write every episode, but did write um, four of the ten episodes, including the first three and the finale. And it just had a great style. Like it was very easy to keep track of the different years because of the way that it was shot and the filters they use. Like 1995 was very dingy and blue tinted and washed out and dark. And 93 was like super washed out in the opposite direction of like being bright um, and colorful. I just loved it, it was so good. So we've been following the story forwards and backwards for 10 episodes we find out in the second to last episode in episode nine so this was last week not the finale and this episode features nothing in 1995 so they're also within the series kind of playing with time and with formatting as well so we only get 1993 and 1994. so in 94 after kate has escaped kate is in therapy telling her therapist the story of what happened to her while she was held captive and that's all we get from 94 we do not see Jeanette in this episode we see nobody but um Kate and Martin and like from afar we see part of Kate's family and that's about it so it's like a very contained two-person episode it was so fucking good but we find out that Kate was not kidnapped from the beginning she went to martin harris's house willingly because she trusted him because she needed to get away from her family and they end up in a it's weird to say this but a relationship and then the therapist is telling her the whole time like that martin was grooming you and that is very true that is what he was doing but kate we find out was also very active in her participation in this relationship and in pursuing this relationship and in um her own ultimate downfall in a way Now, obviously, it is not completely her fault because she was 17 and Martin Harris was an adult. I am not victim blaming in this situation. Just explaining, like, the nuance of this, that that is one of the most interesting parts of this show, I think, is that um, we think up until this point, like, how awful Martin must be. And we see, like, these little creepy things he does, like, picking up Kate's scrunchie in one scene and wanting to hold on to it and like flirting kind of openly with her and like being alone in his car, but like nothing inappropriate happens until Kate shows up at his house. And then days later, she makes a move on him and he kind of gives into it. So it really blurs these lines. I mean, not entirely, like I said, but it makes the whole ending of the series even more impactful, I think, and also interesting to talk about so on christmas eve 1993 kate has been with martin for um for a while i want to it's been i I think like five or six months at this point because jeanette's birthday was in july i believe um june so it's been about five six months on christmas eve kate starts wanting to get out she tells martin i don't want to be here anymore i want to see my family she sneaks out sneaks back in and then martin leaves after chastising her um And while she's home alone on Christmas Eve, Jeanette breaks into the house, which like, this has been a a storyline with Jeanette the whole season, that she just randomly breaks into Martin Harris's house and we don't fucking know why. Like, is she breaking into other houses or is she just obsessed with breaking into this house? And like, why Christmas Eve? You know, we find out in the finale that it's because, like she went in there on Christmas Eve because she saw Martin leave, so she knew that Martin wouldn't be home and she assumed that she would be alone. She could like go in, snoop around and take something, which is like part of this game that she started playing with her friends, Mallory. And what is the boy's name? It's escaping me. Mallory and what is his name? Vince, Jesus, Mallory and Vince, where they they break into this apartment, they take something to prove it and the game continues. So she breaks in and steals a snow globe, which we also heard in a couple episodes earlier. Um, Jeanette went to Mallory looking for the snow globe, but since her and Mallory are no longer friends, Mallory said she threw it away, but she didn't. She still has it because the snow globe proved something. So when Kate went in and took the snow globe, the snow globe was out of tune. And earlier that night, before Jeanette showed up, Kate called her boyfriend, Jamie, and left him a voicemail that was creepy. It was just breathing. And then this weird out of tune Christmas song. So Jeanette notices when she hears this voicemail in 1995. So the voicemail was left in '93. She hears it in '95 from Jamie, the boyfriend, and she realizes, oh fuck, that's the snow globe. I can prove that Kate was in well, that Kate was fine in December. That she was roaming around the house. She was not locked in the basement because I took that snow globe from the living room. So she was clearly in the living room, right? So she doesn't get the snow globe, but she does confront Kate in this house in 1995 and they kind of tell their stories. So Kate tells Jeanette about all of the shit that Martin did to her, but she says, there's one thing I can't remember, and it's Annabelle. Now you've been hearing about Annabelle throughout the course of the series that Kate has this name in her head with when she's talking to her therapist, but can't remember who it is. Who is Annabelle? So like, you know, when we first hear it, it's like, is Annabelle someone else who was held captive there? Did Martin Harris impregnate Kate and she gave birth and he got rid of the baby and she named it Annabelle in her in her trauma? Was there was it a dog? Who the fuck knows? What is Annabelle? So so Kate's therapist says you need to work through this and figure it out. And maybe, like, immersion will help. So Kate returns to the house to figure it out. Her and Jeanette go down to the basement together to jog Kate's memory. We start to, again, piece together this shit of, like, the snow globe. And we find out that Christmas Eve is the night that Kate Wallace said she saw Jeanette know that she was there. So Kate looks outside after Jeanette leaves with the snow globe and sees a person on a bike with a hoodie look through the window at her and see her and then drive away. Only it wasn't Kate it was mallory mallory was following kate was following jeanette and that's who saw kate through the window was mallory cut to two years later when mallory is kate's best friend i knew some shit was going with mallory she was a creeper she was creep P, And we find out that she's been like obsessed with Kate this whole time in a way and courting her friendship and like has held the secret that she knew Kate was there the whole time and didn't say shit. She knew the whole time Jeanette was innocent and Jeanette used to be her best friend. And I don't give a fuck what kind of fight I'm having with a former best friend. If I know some shit that's going to keep them out of court and out of literal jail and being America's most hated person, I'm going to fucking say something. So like fuck Mallory, dude. Anyway, so we find out that Mallory is the one that saw her. So they go downstairs to the basement and Kate finally remembers who Annabelle was and tells Jeanette the story of what happened on the final night when she escaped. And it's that Martin came down with a family heirloom, a revolver that his grandfather had named Annabelle. So Annabelle is a gun. And he brings it down because he's going to kill himself. And he leaves the door open and gives Kate permission. He says, get out of here, run away, I'm done. Everything's gonna fall apart once they find out what's happening here, what I've done to you, I'm gonna kill myself. But he can't bring himself to do it. But again, he collapses, the doors open, Kate could just run away. Instead, she picks up the gun and shoots him. So this story the police and media have been telling that Martin Harris was killed in a shootout was a lie kate murdered him and yes he was her captor but again with these gray areas these blurred lines he was her captor but he gave her an out to escape he was letting her go he was giving up his own life to let her out and rather and rather than go um kate decided to pick up the gun and shoot him And then stayed with him all night as he died and was and was dead. Fucked up, man. Like Kate has some fucking issues, dude. Mallory has some fucking issues, but the icing on the cake. Jeanette tells Kate that the lawsuit and everything, which is going to go in Jeanette's favor because they exposed Kate as a liar. They found a chat printout that Kate's that Jeanette's brother, who was dating Kate's sister, found when they were fucking one day um brings it to court and Kate admits that um has to admit to that part of the story that she was not always Martin's captor or captive rather um and Jeanette says it's not about the money I don't want to bankrupt your family I just want a public apology I want my life back so Kate um publicly announces that Jeanette she was mistaken Jeanette did not see her she admits to her part of the story um Mallory and she start to date. Kate and Mallory start dating even after Mallory admits that she pieced together that it was Kate that she had seen in the window and didn't say anything. So weird. So they're like a couple now. And then Jeanette, in a twist and a turn, ends up on The Marsha Bailey Show, which is the same show where Kate denounced Jeanette in the first place a year earlier, and says, Kate Wallace, I forgive you. And we think this is the end, right? Everyone's story is resolved. Mallory's got some shit to work through. Kate is getting away literally with murder. I'm sure that they could claim it as self defense, but she gets away with murder. And like, that's some shit to work through, right? But then we get one final scene. Sometime after Christmas Eve, 1993. Because that is around the time that Kate was imprisoned by Martin in the basement. So sometime after she's been imprisoned, Jeanette breaks into the house again. And Kate hears someone upstairs and begs for help. And Jeanette hears her and almost opens the door, which Kate is on the other side of, but doesn't. She hears Kate, knows she's down there and leaves without helping or saying anything. After she realizes it was Kate, because she, and this, because of the way that Jeanette is dressed, we know is the beginning of Jeanette assuming Kate's life. That is fucked up. (laughs) Just when I thought that Jeanette was a victim and Kate even said Jeanette is also a victim. After all of that, when we finally have gotten everyone's stories out, we find out that Jeanette is actually a fucking psychopath. And her obsession with Kate was real. It was a real thing. And it wasn't just like, oh, we're all mourning Kate's disappearance. And I kind of am just insinuating myself into the situation by chance or, you know, by opportunity, whatever it was. No, she purposefully, knowingly, assumed kate's life in 1994 because she knew where kate was and knew because of where she was that she was not getting out what the fuck that is some dark shit but you know what it made the damn series i'm glad it was there (laughs) so now i am so curious if season two of cruel summer will be a continuation if it will be more filling in these holes if it'll be like a sequel a prequel a side call as some people call like a simultaneous storytelling or if it's going to be an entirely new storyline with the same actors which is what the creators hinted could be it'll be they don't know yet they haven't decided or haven't planned for which one will be if it'll be a continuation or if it'll be a new story with some of the same cast, like an anthology a la American horror story. I don't know if I want a continuation. I think this is a really amazing button to leave it on. And it really makes, like, I am now at some point when I have the time probably going to go back and rewatch the whole show, especially the 1994 sections and try to figure out how this final scene fits into everything because I did not see it coming, I really didn't. I really did not see it coming. I don't know if it's because I liked Jeanette as a character better, if it's because oh, we got to see so little of Jeanette over the last few episodes. Like episode seven, I think it was, was all Kate Wallace. It was happy birthday, Kate, and it was following Kate's birthday and then following Kate and all her friends and her family. So like Jeanette was not in that episode. And then Jeanette was not in episode nine, which was the bottle episode with um, Kate and Martin. So like we didn't get a lot of Jeanette in the last episodes. So maybe it's that I grew to dislike and distrust Kate more in the last few episodes that I had a rosier view of Jeanette that kind of colored my thinking. or if I just felt bad for Jeanette because she was being railroaded. I don't know. But I loved the way this ended. And I'm going to also shout out to Blake Lee, who played Martin Harris. That man is so fucking talented. I want him on everything because he made me feel so sorry. And he made me defend. You heard me do it some at the beginning of this recap. A pedophile who groomed a young girl and then started a full blown fantasy relationship with her and then almost committed suicide and then was murdered. Like I felt bad for and sympathized with and understood that man. Kudos Blakely, best performance on the whole show. Um, So yeah, I guess we'll see what the fuck happens, but I can't wait for season two. I hope they get cracking like right now because I want it ASAP. And if you want to watch the whole series, even though I just spoiled the whole goddamn thing for you, (laughs) watch it now. On Hulu, all 10 episodes are currently available to stream. All right, so this week we got the finale of RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. Now, if you listen to episode 12, you know that I was very high on Drag Race Down Under after the premiere, but um, the rest of the season was a big old dumpster fire it uh it sucked to put it lightly um i don't so much happened uh so first of all i called a correct top three except there was a top four but three of my three predictions were in that top four so one it was a very predictable season also, a very unpredictable season, um, and the unpredictability is uh, where I think this show fell completely on its face. Um, before I even get into the finale, which featured our top four of Scarlet Blackface Adams, Kid Ameen, um, Art Simone, and Karen from Finance, let's talk about why this season uh, fell on its face. Um, so the first episode, just watch that episode and then be done. And you're fine with Drag Race down under. Like if you've never watched this and you're like, you you have an hour and you to fill, you can watch that first episode and then be good. Think of it as a special. Think of it as a one-off special. Because after that episode, it was just a plane in free fall. It was terrible. See, episode two was Snatch Game and gave us one of the best Snatch Games in not only recent memory, but maybe of all time from Anita Wiglet, who played uh, the Queen of England and played her as like a raunchy old lady who loved to smother peanut butter on her punani and have her corgis lick it off. Like it was funny. Everyone else, horrible. One of the overall worst Snatch Games in Drag Race. Then, Art Simone goes home that episode. So, like I said, my predicted top three after the first episode was Art Simone, Karen from Finance, and one of Kitamine or Anita Wegweb. But Art goes home. I'm like, oh, shit. Down Under is doing it. Uh, Next episode, Coco Jumbo goes home. So now, if you're keeping track, we have lost both queens of color from this show. JoJo went home episode one, Coco episode three. Then at the beginning of episode four, Art is just back. She's just back in the competition for no fucking reason. Like this happens quite often on Drag Race where like they just bring someone back. On season three, Ru was like, I wanted to give a girl a second chance and they just randomly bring back Carmen Carrera. They randomly brought back Kenya Michaels in season four, this past season on Drag Race UK. At least then they tried to make it look objective um, because they brought back all eliminated queens after the COVID break and had the remaining queens vote on who should return and they voted for Joe Black. But like in this one, Art just shows up and Rue's like, she's back. And like I said in that last episode recap in episode 12 of this podcast, it reeks of favoritism. They just wanted Art to stick around. Because there was no reason to bring her back. She bombed the fuck out of the second episode Bye, we don't need you. <laughs> like, what is the point? And then once she did come back, she did nothing to justify her return. She never won a single comp- a, a single challenge. She, I think, had maybe one high placement. The episode she came back and that was fucking questionable. I think they just put her in the top so that it would look like they didn't just randomly do whatever they wanted to do because it was not that good. And then she was safe and low the rest of the season. It was a, it was a mess. So and then Coco Jumbo um, or uh, Anita Wiglet goes home. That's the episode for a dress that was actually really fucking good. So now we have lost someone who I thought was going to be a huge contender. Because she had a good first episode, one of the most iconic looks of the season with the New Zealand sheep outfit. She won the second episode with one of the best Snatch games in memory. She was high in the third episode and then just went home in episode four to Karen from Finance. What the, what the fuck was happening with this show? And like there were just so many little things that were so ridiculous like The Snatch Game itself was borderline offensive with some of its stuff, like et cetera, et cetera, played, um, oh my God, what is her name? The woman whose baby was eaten by a dingo. Um, I'm gonna look up, Lindy Chamberlain, whose baby in the 80s was literally eaten by a wild animal and she was tried for murder and found guilty. And then finally on appeal, they found evidence that a dingo actually did eat her baby. So, like, that is who, etc etc et, cetera, et cetera, played. What the fuck? Then there was a whole episode about selling a product made of yeast where everyone just made dirty vagina jokes. It was just, it was such a bizarre season. And then Electra Shock was painted as this terrible no-talent queen and the villain of the season. And meanwhile, we're all watching, like, we want electroshock to win because she was one clearly the underdog and two not even kind of as bad as they were trying to make her out to be and actually in a lot of cases better than some of the ones that production clearly favored art simone and in a lot of cases karen like i was so high on karen in episode one i thought she was going to win because she had such an amazing first episode and such a great australian drag legacy she didn't do shit the rest of the season she went from top to low in the second episode, bottom two in the fourth episode, low in the fifth episode, barely high placement in the sixth episode, and then low again in the seventh episode. She didn't do anything to justify being there at the end. But then again, neither did almost anyone else. Like if they were just going by who had a good track record by like the top five or whatever, it honestly should have been Ketamine, Scarlet Adams, and probably Electra Shock. Because at least she had. The support of us watching and the underdog storyline like that should have been our top three. It was just it was such a bizarre season. The judging made no fucking sense. The decisions made no fucking sense. It was so bad. And then we finally we we finally address Scarlett Adams blackface. And I believe it might have been episode five or six, somewhere around there. And Rue goes like, well, I'm glad you learned from it. And basically, I forgive you, which like, are we forgetting when just this past season on UK, you screened your fucking head off at Joe Black for wearing H&M, but then someone does black face and you're like, "Meh, we live and we learn. Uh, what what oh my god so like by the time we get to the top four and it's kidda art karen and scarlett like if scarlett had won there would have been riots in the streets and even though she had the best track record she has three wins going into the finale there's no way that the production could have let her win because the people in australia would have been burning shit because of her racist history karen from finance Also has a bit of a racist history collecting gollywogs, which are like blackface dolls. Basically, they are dolls and cartoons that are very um, racially stereotypical, like a lot of what we would consider in the US like Mammy or Aunt Jemima types. so, and even had a tattoo of one that she eventually got covered, thankfully, but still not a great look. And then we have Art Simone, who just randomly got back in the competition for no reason, and Kida. So, like, if Kidamine didn't win, there, again, what would, what would the fucking point be? So, like, Art, to me, is a very distant fourth place, no matter how well she does in this last episode, and she also really doesn't do that well in the episode anyway. Uh, and I know that I'm not even talking about the episode, I'm just talking about the season, but, like, to how we got to this point... I don't know, (laughs) and I, I, kidamine, spoiler alert, thank the Lord wins RuPaul's Drag Race Down Under. This is the only outcome that would not have pissed a large portion of people off, so I'm glad that she won. On top of that, she really had a late season resurgence, is that the right word, I guess even though for some reason she was in the bottom two episode seven she did not deserve to be should have been art um she had great she had great on-screen presence she was funny she can sing as we find out in this last episode she was a great lip syncer. her fashion her looks were top-notch and that's what we want out of this show someone who like There's a storyline here of like emerging from her cocoon and blossoming into a beautiful flower. That is what we like on Drag Race. We don't like stagnancy and favoritism like art. We don't like someone who starts strong and then fades like Karen. And we don't like people who do blackface like Scarlett. So the final challenge we get, like the interview with RuPaul and Michelle, as per usual, like they've stopped doing their podcast. They're just you know, sitting in chairs at this point. And this actually was a really good portion of this interview. Like, usually I don't find these very interesting or revealing. But for some reason, these felt a little more honest. And I wonder if it's because they've removed the artifice of like, there's a microphone in front of our face because we're fake recording our podcast. And Rue was not in drag, maybe that helped. And like with art, especially talking about how he's the primary breadwinner in his family and supports a whole bunch of people. Michelle being like, right, but you're going to burn out eventually. And then you have no one in your life to take care of you. Like you need to start thinking about your next act and what you're going to do. And like looking for someone to love you the way you love your family. And like you could see art was kind of visibly shaken. So that was really nice. And it even humanized Scarlett a little bit talking about, you know, having, um a rough relationship with her father and, um, you know, missing home and having a partner who it was hard not to be around, that kind of thing. Um, So it was actually a pretty nice episode, not a very exciting one. But then we get the final challenge, which as, you know, in seasons past is a rumix of a of a RuPaul single and this time it's I'm a winter baby and everyone writes their verse and does choreography and the choreography kind of sucks and it's very repetitive and whatever but the verses are pretty damn good. Kidamine sings her verse and is actually a decent singer and the lyrics are not as she says the usual like I'm going to snatch the crown and I'm here to cut your heads off because that's not who she is and it really pays off. She comes off really well with the first verse. Even Art, who I think probably had the weakest verse, because uh, she tried to shove in too many words, was not bad. Karen had a good verse. Even Scarlett had a pretty decent verse, although I think even though she was the best dancer, stood out too much as trying too hard, so she looked awkward compared to the rest. And then everyone comes out in their best drag. Art is in this huge, beautiful ball gown. Um, Oh my God, Kitamine has these like Courtney Actish wings, like an angel showgirl. Scarlet looks beautiful as usual. And Karen from Finance is the peak Karen from Finance. Like is Karen from Finance's usual drag, but elevated and rhinestone. And everyone looks really great. And then it comes down to the lip sync, which Rue says everyone's going to do solo. So we get like clips of everyone doing this and like art cannot move in the ball gown and it's too physical by Libby Newton-John. So art is like in my mind immediately out of the running. Scarlet is in this like beautiful dress that she kind of removes the bottom of to be in a leotard and she like crawls around and is doing pushups and shit. And like, I don't know, not great for me. It really, for the lip sync to me, comes down to Karen from Finance who is camping it the fuck up and is so funny and, Kidamine, who is also being really campy, oh my God, at one point when she's singing the chorus, let's get physical, pulls out a rubber glove and mines fisting and a prostate exam, like, lost my shit, it was over at that moment for me. That is when Kidda won Drag Race Down Under. And she does win Drag Race Down Under, thankfully. So a shit season ends up with the most justified and, the 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 best winner of the bunch and not necessarily the most talented like i said scarlet won the most challenges so if you want to look at it that way where this is something i think i might have touched on with uh season 13 when that ended in april that we are now at a point in drag race where track records like who has the most wins most losses that shit does not matter when it comes to the finale because if you look at it that way rose should have won should have won season 13. and we all knew that Rose was not going to win season 13. It was all going to come down to either Gottmick or Simone. So when Gotmic was out in the first lip sync, we knew Simone was going to win. It was a foregone conclusion. So it was kind of the same thing here. We're like, it doesn't fucking... it. As, Scarlett can go in having won every episode up until the finale. And she was not going to win this because she did Blackface. So have I mentioned that Scarlett Adams does Blackface? <laughs> Sorry, I can't get over it. So even though of these top four, Kidda did not have the best track record, she also did not have the worst. She had about the same track record, I think, as Karen from Finance, where, like, they each had a win and they each had a bottom two placement. Although Kida had more high placements than Karen did. And Art, like I said, is a distant fourth. No wins, was already eliminated, was no reason to even be there. Um, so this was kidamine winning was the best possible outcome with this top four. Now, had it been like Kidamine, Scarlet Adams, and Electra Shock, that would have been more interesting to me because Kidda and Electra having to compete for the crown would have had the hometown storyline, the boss employee storyline, the friendship storyline, the both being underdogs to Scarlet storyline. I think that would have made for a much more interesting finale. But I don't know. What do I know? So regardless, the first season of Drag Race Down Under is over, and I'm I'm glad. If you're not watching Drag Race España, you should be watching that because it's really good, especially compared to Down Under. And I kind of hope that this is maybe a one and done or that they completely revamp what they did. Now I heard, and this is not rumor, this is what actually happened because I heard it from Vanity Fair on her podcast, that they did not hold auditions for Drag Race Down Under. They just sought people out, which is why like all three New Zealand queens were from the TV show House of Drag. Anita Kidda and Electra were all on that show. It's why like Art Simone was on the show when she had her own wow presents thing. So it's, they recruited these queens. So I kind of hope that next year they open up the audition process, one, to get more fucking queens of color in that workroom, and two, because then like maybe we can get a natural storyline and not these like created, produced stories that the the team clearly wants, i.e. art being in the finale despite not deserving to be maybe art can host next season maybe RuPaul and Michelle don't need to even come back for next season down under art can host it I'd be fine with that she's a hugely famous drag queen as we heard in this finale with all of her advertisements and TV shows and stuff let her host let's be done with it maybe bring back Anita to host alongside her or since kidamine one kid can host alongside her I don't know but we do not need another season of drag race on under that is like this But if you want to catch up and be frustrated like the rest of us were, the entire season is now on WoW Presents Plus. Coming up this week in premieres and finales. On Monday, we're getting the sixth season of Below Deck Mediterranean on Bravo, although actually it's airing on Peacock on Monday. Um, They're doing some weird promotion where if you have Peacock, you can watch episodes of Below Deck Med season six a week before they air on Bravo. So it'll actually air the 28th on Bravo after um, Below Deck Sailing Yacht has wrapped up its reunion this week. But um, I don't know why they're doing this for Below Deck Med considering it's, the reaction online has not been positive to people who uh, previously watched the show. So I can't imagine this doing Peacock much business, but regardless that starts on Monday on Peacock. And then also returning is Celebrity IOU on HGTV. On Tuesday, The OWN Network premieres the second season of David Makes Man, which is the series from um, Terrence, I think his name is, and he won the Oscar for writing Moonlight. Uh, the first season aired, I think, two years ago. The second season starts on Tuesday and also returning his Motherland, Fort Salem, for its second season on Freeform. On Wednesday, Netflix drops the second season of Too Hot to Handle, and The CW finally premieres the third season of In the Dark. Thursday, Peacock is releasing a limited series on Ghislaine, Maxwell, who was Jeffrey Epstein's girlfriend partner, called Epstein's Shadow. Also, Paramount Plus is dropping a bunch of content. They are giving the series, the season five premiere of The Good Fight, The Good Wife spinoff. And also, we are getting the sixth season of RuPaul's Drag Race All Stars, which, of course, I'm recapping next week. Why did you even have to ask? Also, we are getting two episodes of that on Thursday, in addition to Untucked, which is moving to Paramount Plus as well. The third season of Making It premieres on NBC and the third season of the drag camping YouTube series, Camp Wanakiki is on YouTube. And then on Friday, Amazon is releasing the seventh and final season of Bosch. And Apple TV Plus releases the second season of Central Park, which is the animated series from the Bob's Burgers folks. Okay, my recommendation for this week is an episode of TV, not a full series, and it just aired last week. It is the Queer Eye for the Straight Guy episode of the new E-series Reunion Road Trip. So you can find this on... Uh, Peacock is where I watched it, but it's also on demand from E! If you have any of the NBC apps, it should be on there as well. And or if you have Hulu Plus Live TV, not regular Hulu, sadly, but Hulu Plus Live, it's there as well. And Reunion Road Trip is a new series. There are four episodes and this was the first one and it basically is just reuniting the casts of beloved TV series. It's going to be Queer Eye, which I'm going to talk about in a minute, then also the casts of All My Children, uh, Scrubs, and A Different World are also going to be having episodes coming up. And the reason I'm recommending this is, number one, it is still Pride Month, Be Gay, do Crimes. Donate to a... Trans organization. Juneteenth was this past weekend. Make it a black trans organization, why don't ya? Uh, the Marsha P. Johnson Institute is one of them. Glitz, G-L-I-T-S is another. Feel free to throw your money at them. Also, um, Queer Eye was one of my favorite shows for a very long time. It was one of, the, one of the first and also probably the most positive depiction I had seen on TV of gay people. And as we all know, the reboot is out and wonderful and amazing and probably better than the original in almost every way. But the original still has a very large part of my heart. I mean, everyone from that series is still doing things. The only person who doesn't come back for the reunion is Ted Allen. He's on FaceTime the whole episode, which is hysterical that like Tom Felicia is just driving around in the car with his phone held up to his face, like pointing Ted at everyone. It's hysterical uh, because Ted is filming Chopped. Ted may be the most successful of the Fab Five, which is strange considering at the time he was probably the most ignored because he was the oldest and the least conventionally attractive of everyone. And he has been doing Chopped for like 1,500 years. And he also has had cookbooks and he's the one that gave us Antony on the new Queer Eye. Uh, Carson is back. And again, Carson obviously has been everywhere. Dancing with the Stars, uh, RuPaul's Drag Race, Drag Race All Stars, All Over E and the red carpets and all of that good shit. Kyan, who, you know, back in the day was, I think, inarguably the most attractive, the hottest of the Fab Five. Like, I, if you don't think that he was the hottest, I, I am a little confused. But regardless, Kyan the Grooming Man is still the grooming guy on the Rachel Ray Show. Although he looks fucking rough now. Like, I don't know if it's because of the pandemic. I don't know if it's because it was his first TV appearance in a while. I don't know if he got work done allegedly, don't sue me. But like his face was very, was looked a little puffy and his eyes looked tiny and his skin looked washed out. Could be ring lights. Could be Botox fillers. I don't I don't know allegedly again, but he didn't look good and Tom Felicia who has aged the best I think um, Who also still does a whole lot of shit in New York City him and Carson had a Bravo show a couple years ago Um, He also does the daytime talk show circuit every once in a while and then Jay Rodriguez and the premise of this show Of this episode is that everyone is reuniting to throw Jay a 40th birthday party and um he is also their straight guy makeover <laughs> because he needs it and deserves it for his 40th birthday. Now, Jay, since the show ended, was on Malibu Country with Reba, Wil- Reba Wilson. That's a combination of Reba McIntyre and Reba Wilson <laughs> with Reba McEntire. Um, That only lasted a season and he's done like some guest spots and stuff then. He's done his cabaret. He did a show in Vegas. I forget what it was called. Um, but it was something, it was a scripted comedy. Sheena from Vanderhump Rules was also in it at one point. Um, And you know, he's done a lot of personal appearances, obviously, and cabarets and things like that. So they all gather together in a rented house because it's LA. So of course they rented a house for the occasion. And Carson gives Jay a style makeover. Kyan gives him some tips on how to treat his skin now that he's getting older. And Ted walks them through again via FaceTime, some recipes. Um, Carson takes him shopping. Tom sets up for the party and gives it a Moroccan theme. And then we just get a whole bunch of really gay guests that come, like Brad Lokely, who is one of my favorite comedians. He is so fucking funny. Look him up on YouTube and Twitter. Um, one of the original makeover guys from queer eye ralph i think his name was who when you see him in the episode you remember who he was he comes back and kind of talks about how much they changed his life and it just reminded me literally like i was saying of how positive and uplifting and life-changing this show was like honest to god queer eye did more for gay rights <laughs> than any politician it <sighs> You know, the 80s and 90s, if you watched Pride, you know this, which my recommendation last week was very much angry activism. It was AIDS was decimating the gay community and the trans community. And it was anger and it was demonstrating and it was die-ins and it was bullhorns outside of offices. And it was picketing at pharmacies and uh, and pharmacists. And it was it was loud and it was brash because it needed to be and then you know retrovirals and azt and treatment started to arrive and we ended up more in a period of visibility when acceptance of lgbt people became more the goal like you watched us die for the past couple of decades now see why we deserve to live that was good i i'm a poet sometimes motherfuckers um, but regardless will and grace and queer eye i think did more to show people the realities of being gay than anything else ever has um and it's a different kind of reality than something like what act up was fighting for and what we saw on the news with activists throwing their loved ones ashes on the capitol building lawn things like that that it was a softer side it was a human side it was looking at Especially the men of Queer Eye and wanting to be their friends because they're just normal people. They're just people existing as they are. And it it was the beginning of the reality TV boom. And I think a lot of that has to do with how much fun these five guys were and how much fun they had on the show. And this episode really reminded me of that. And that is a great thing to be reminded of every day, but especially during Pride. <laughs> so our recommendation is the Queer Eye for the Straight Guy episode of Reunion Road Trip. Like I said, it's now available on demand from E! and also on Peacock for free. And if you have Hulu Plus Live TV, you can watch it there as well. Thank you for tuning in to this episode of Fake TV Critic. I'll be back next week with more recaps, more reviews, more analyses, and more recommendations. Have a good week, everyone.